Good morning, church family. Let us get back to Genesis, back to the beginning. So if you would, open up your Bibles and please turn in them to Genesis chapter 16. It has been two months since we were last in this book, so a bit of review will be in order, which is perfect because the chapter before us demands review if we're actually going to understand it. We are breaking up this massive and massively important book into four different series because it'll take us years and years to get through the whole book. We are in part two, focusing on the life of Abraham, a man we are introduced to in Genesis 12. And to understand Abraham and the purpose of Abraham, we're going to have to go back to the previous chapter, 15, because our chapter, 16, makes no sense apart from 15, which makes no sense apart from 12, which makes no sense apart from 3, which makes no sense apart from 1 and 2. So, as I said, some review will be in order, which is timely for any hope that we may have in understanding the story we have before us. You need to get into the practice in your Bible reading of always asking the question, why is this here? Always be asking yourself, why is this here? And I think that especially applies when we read Old Testament narrative. I read a lot of commentaries and I listened to a lot of sermons on Genesis 16 this week. And maybe more than ever uh, that I've experienced, basically all of them seem to miss the point of this chapter. And I would guess that's in large part because of a failure to ask that big picture question. Why is this here? How does this story relate to what has come before? What does God intend to communicate through this story? The third question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what does the Bible primarily teach? The answer, the Bible primarily teaches what man must believe about God and what God requires of man. What does Genesis 16 teach about God that you must believe And then what God requires of you. This is probably a grossly unfair generalization, but in the tradition that many of us grew up in, the second is emphasized almost to the exclusion of the first. We major on the what God requires of man and often miss the what what man must believe about God. And it seems that is particularly a problem for people when it comes to Genesis 16. I heard a lot of sermons about not trusting God. I heard sermons about the abuse of women. I heard sermons about God blessing the weak and oppressed. Sermons all focused on one or other of the human characters in the story that then go on to draw some moral lesson from something related to one of the human characters of the story. Something we should do. In other words, what God requires of man. It was strange this week. Many of the preachers I was listening to were preachers that generally know better and preach accordingly, but it seems that no one knows what to do with this story. And so they'll pick out some sort of legitimate but secondary application and focus on that. But again, we need to be asking the question this morning. Why is this story here? What does this story contribute to the bigger story of all of the things that God could have preserved for us about Abraham's long life? There's going to be a 13-year gap between chapters 16 and 17. Why does he give us this one story? 
It seems that many people just answer, I, I don't know, it's just sort of a side story. It's a negative example of what happens when we fail to trust God or, or what happens when we try to bring about God's plan in our way. So Genesis 16, hey, you should trust God. Uh, you shouldn't oppress or abuse the weak, which, of course, yes, is true. But is that why this story is here? I'm going to argue that it's not. I'm going to argue that there is something much bigger here that we tend to miss, something much grander and more encouraging, something much more about God and what he does than us and what we must do. If you'll look down there at the text, hopefully open in front of you, you'll see that it basically breaks down into two parts, two major movements in the story. Part one, verses one through six. Part two, verses seven through 14, followed by a brief summary in verses 15 and 16. We're going to also see that there are three main characters in each of these two parts. Part one, we have Sarai, Hagar, and Abram, and none is righteous. No, not one. There are no human heroes in this story. There is no example to emulate. Uh, There is no, hey, be like any of them. But then there is part two. Hagar is again one of the characters in part two, along with her son, Ishmael. But then, at the center of the story, there is another character, a new character. The first named appearance of this character in the whole Bible. The angel of the Lord. And, spoiler alert, that's the point of this story. For some reason, everyone skips over the most important part of the story. They largely ignore the main character of the story. This story exists to introduce to us the angel of the Lord and his role in the larger story. And it's wonderful and thrilling. This is so much bigger and better than Abraham lacks faith. So, Don't lack faith like Abraham. No, this is about the promise. The promiser who is also the promised. And I'm going to explain that as we go. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read, then we're going to review. And I want us to look, I think part of our failure to understand this story is, again, we fail to understand the context. So I want us to specifically look at this text in terms of Genesis 3.15. The thesis statement of the whole Bible. This story doesn't make any sense apart from Genesis 3. So we're going to do our best to read it through that lens. So today will be a little bit different. I've had some fun with this chapter. We'll see how that goes. Uh, We're going to look at it under, I have four headings. Be completely honest with you up front, we're probably only going to get through the first two headings. So in part one, we're going to give a lot of time and attention and focus on the fall of the seeds of the woman. Then in part two, we're going to focus on the coming of the seed of the woman. And then we'll see how we're doing and at least briefly touch on the promise of the seed of the serpent. And then we'll close back in chapter three, verse 15, uh, with the promise of the victory of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. That, those headings, that outline may sound really, really strange. I'll try my best to explain. And my hope is that in the end, this chapter will be far more clear than it was before and will be far more excited and encouraged by what happens in this strange story. Um, so let's read it first. Um, again, we're trying to make sure what I'm saying is coming from this text. Uh, so let's read it and then see if we can um, unpack it. I'm going to read for you Genesis chapter 16. You can follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures. But pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. 
Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. If you would bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now for your help. I ask that you would help both the preaching and the hearing of your word. Father, I ask um, that your spirit would work uh, through your word. Father, help me to be clear. Help me to be true. Father, I pray that I would do nothing to obscure your word or your text. I pray that I would not read things into your text. I pray that the truth would be proclaimed and it would be clear. I pray that you would use your word uh, to sanctify us, to edify us, to encourage us. Father, I pray that you would use this word to give us great affection for Jesus Christ. Help me, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our first point, I think we're doing more headings than true points this week. I'm hoping this will better help us understand this misunderstood text. First point, the fall of the seeds of the woman. Now, Hopefully, you have been trained enough to know that we preach expositionally here, based upon our convictions about the nature of God's Word, that it is living and active, it is God speaking to us, it is God showing Himself to us, revealing Himself, mediating Himself to us. We then believe that all preaching should be an explanation and application of a passage of Scripture. And so hopefully you know by now that the points of my sermon are supposed to come from the text. My words are supposed to correspond to God's word. Well, if that's the case, 
then where in the world is this first point coming from? Where do we see fall and where do we see seeds? What am I talking about? Well, let's review. I really want us to read this story in its context. I'm going to belabor this point this morning because it's especially important for this story, but it's important for all of your scripture reading. Read it in context. So where have we been? Well, we've been in the beginning. It's been two months, but that's what the book of Genesis is about. It is a book of beginnings. And starting in chapter 12, we started looking at a new beginning. Remember, the book breaks down into two parts, chapters 1 through 11, primeval history. That word literally means first age. The first part of the book is concerned with ancient, earliest history, the beginning of everything, the beginning of all peoples. And then part 2, chapters 12 through 50, is patriarchal history, the beginning of God's people, beginning with Abraham. And so we saw a world largely fallen into darkness and sin. The end of part one is basically all peoples separated from God, including Abraham, who's still Abram at this point. That will finally change next week. But Abram has been a pagan worshiper of false gods until all of a sudden, chapter 12, just like chapter one, God speaks. God's word breaks in, God's grace breaks in, and God calls Abram out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the first thing God does in chapter 12 is make grand and glorious promises to Abram. And we've been looking at those promises through the lens of covenant. That's why after finishing chapter 15 and the instituting of God's covenant with Abraham, it was a perfect time to pause and shift to talk about the covenant of church membership. God always relates to his people through covenant. Makes sense then, maybe, that God's people should relate to each other through covenant. So our argument for church membership has been, since God loves us by committing to us through covenant, we are to likewise love one another by committing to one another through covenant. What is a covenant? Well, most simply, it's a relationship. If you struggle to remember both the nature and importance of covenant, just remember the main covenant summary principle. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's covenant. Covenant is God with us. Remember what we talked about for the last two weeks in Hebrews 10. Confidence to enter the holy places. The invitation to draw near to God. Access, presence, relationship. That's what covenant is about, and that's what covenant is for. God has created us for relationship with him, and God only relates to us through covenant. So a covenant is simply an arrangement that God enters into and makes with man. It is a relationship of oaths and bonds. It is a relationship that is both legal and personal. It's an oath sworn, legally binding, yet intimately personal relationship. And I don't want to get all caught up in the potentially confusing covenant definitions out there. I simply want you to understand that covenant is about communion with God. Covenant sets and determines the conditions that would regulate the relationship between holy God and his sinful people. Or as I have tempted to put it in a too alliterative and maybe not very helpful way, covenants condition creator creature communion. Covenants, verb, they condition the communion between creator and 
creature. Covenants set the terms of the relationship between the Creator God and His created people. And more on that next week. If you look over at chapter 17, you'll see the heading of covenant. So we're getting there. We're going to do more covenant in more detail next week. But for now, we simply need to understand that God has promised this covenant to Abraham, and we have summarized the content of that promise under three headings. Blessing, seed, and land. You can look at chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. God says, I will make of you a great nation. A nation requires a people and a place, a seed and a land. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Skip over and look at verse 7 of chapter 12. God says to your offspring, I will give this land so people in place. Then look back at chapter 15. We see there that God specifically promises Abram a son and then offspring, a people beyond number. And where the ESV is using the word offspring, I'm using the word seed following the King James just because I like the translation seed better. They mean the same thing. Offspring, seed. So the very heart of the promise, the core of the covenant is this seed. God is going to bless. He is going to do good to all of the families of the earth through this seed. How? Why a seed? Genesis 3.15. Flip back there. Now, I told you there would be review, but this is important because this verse is everything. This verse called by many the first gospel, the verse that you could argue is the thesis statement of the whole Bible. You know the story. God has created everything. Most importantly, he has created man. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The pinnacle of all creation is the creation of man. Male and female, made like God together. Both created in the image of God. Both equal, but both beautifully uh, different and complementary. So, ladies... Happy Mother's Day. We love you. We miss you. We wish you could be here with us. I'm very thankful uh, for the ladies in our church. I'm very thankful for God's creation of women. I'm very thankful that my wife is not like me. We are not the same, um, and that is good, and it glorifies God. I'm thankful that God has created man and woman differently. That's a pretty unpopular claim these days even in the church, but it's a biblical claim, right? We celebrate Mother's Day, and husbands, don't be a jerk, right? Celebrate your wife. Honor her. Buy her some food. Get her some flowers. Do something to affirm and encourage your wife. Ephesians 5. Go read it. Love your wives. Uh, so we celebrate what Mother's Day because women are wonderful and are valuable and beautifully different than men, and we need that, and we need them. So Melissa, I love you. Ladies, uh, we love you. Husbands, Love your wives. God has created man, male, and female. Those are different things that come together and beautifully display and reveal something to us about God. So God has created everything ultimately for this purpose, to create these people to be in relationship with him. And then God richly blessed man and provided for him a calling and everything that he would need to fulfill that calling, uh, including the food, an abundance of trees, all the trees, but one. 
And people focus on and freak out about the one tree. God says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so we say, wait, what? Why? Why the tree? Why not just take that out? Right. And don't even put that in there. What are you you doing there, God? But we're missing the point. God created us for relationship. But rules are inherent to all relationships. Inherent to my covenant relationship with my wife is the rule that I am hers and she is mine, which means that no one else is. Inherent to the relationship is the rule that I will be in relationship with no other woman. Rules are good. People often say silly things today like Christianity is relationship and it's not religion. No, that's dumb. It's about relationship. It's not rules. Again, that's dumb. There cannot be relationship without rules. And that's all the tree Represents God is saying, trust me, even if you don't understand the tree, trust me, obey me, be faithful to me. You cannot have a relationship without that. Right? And so the tree is just indicative of this inherent fact to all relationship. There is law. There is rule. But again, we know they choose not to trust him. They fail. They break the rule. They reject the relationship. Satan twists God's word. He tempts the man and the woman, and they choose to trust themselves instead of God, and the relationship is ruined. Now, cut off from the God of good and life, sin and death enter into the world. And what does God do? Keep this in mind. This is going to be important for later. He enters into the world. He comes And in the middle of pronouncing his righteous judgment against the injustice and evil of the man and the woman, he also pronounces his merciful grace. In pronouncing judgment on Satan represented by the snake, God also promises to do something. 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, very important verse. Can't camp on it for now. A couple of big ideas, though, for our purposes. Humanity, here we see, is going to be divided into two seeds, two peoples, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, or Satan's people and God's people, the reprobate and the redeemed, those against God and those for God. Two seeds. Remember, the rest of Genesis and the Bible then traces the development of and conflict and interaction between these two seeds. So two seeds. And then second, this conflict will one day conclude with the victory of the seed of the woman over, notice this, not the seed of the serpent, but the serpent himself. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is promising that he is going himself to do something about Satan, sin, and death. And that something is going to be through a seed, an offspring, a son. So Genesis 3.15, a promised seed. Genesis 12, a promised seed. Genesis 15, a promised seed. Verse 4, Abram, your very own son. Genesis 16, 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. All of that makes this all the more serious. There is a problem with the promise. The promise is a son. Sarai has no son. That's all 
the context. We're finally to the text. But it's so important. There are a few things more difficult than the longing for a child that will not come. Let's not minimize that. But what's going on here is so much more than that. Everything depends upon this promised seed. There is no seed. And remember, chapter 11, verse 30, Sarai was barren. So there is also seemingly not even the possibility of a seed or a son. Enter the main human character of chapter 16. Enter Hagar and the Hagar solution. Second half of verse 1. Sarai has no children, but she does have a female servant. And she does have a plan. Verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And here we have what tends to be the main focus of sermons and applications of this text. God made a promise. You will have a son. It's already been 10 years. That's a pretty long time. I don't know about you, but I tend to get impatient and restless a lot earlier than 10 years. We've only been stuck in this pause for less than 10 weeks. And some of us are already going crazy. Ten years doesn't feel that long. Nope, ten weeks doesn't feel that long compared to ten years. They've waited. Sarai is done waiting. God has made a promise. God has not yet performed that promise. So Sarai comes up with her own plan to perform that promise. Here you go, husband. Here's another woman. Sleep with her. And to us, this sounds crazy, but this was the practice back then. There would have been nothing strange about this. We have another of Syrian, Babylon, all these other ancient Near Eastern texts that share accounts of this practice. Wife can't get pregnant? No problem. Try somebody else. This would have been a very much a culturally acceptable practice. But we know that a culturally acceptable practice is not necessarily a biblically acceptable practice. Today, pregnant? Don't want to be? No problem. Go and get an abortion. That's even an essential service. A very much culturally acceptable and now culturally protected and praised practice. Yeah, but we know what scripture says. Life is beautiful. There's nothing more valuable than life. Protect it. And we know what scripture says about Sarai's plan as well. Genesis 2 wasn't that many chapters ago. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. You can go check the Hebrew grammar. Singular. And they shall become one flesh. God has clearly said. But now Sarai is in effect asking, did God really say? Does that sound familiar? It should, because we've already looked at Genesis 3.15, and I'm reading this lens through the text of Genesis 3, because this text is asking us to read it through the lens of Genesis 3. This text is very much constructed in a way that is supposed to draw your mind back to Genesis 3 and link this story with that Story. Look at it. End of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Sound familiar? We only get that in one other spot. Genesis 3, 17. God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Same thing. Look at verse 3. Again, it's been 10 long years. Verse 3 says, Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Sound familiar? It should. Genesis 3, 6. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Same thing. This is the fall of Sarah and Abram. This is the fall of the seeds, plural, of the woman. This is the godly line, the chosen line. And we've been looking ever since chapter 3, verse 15, for the seed who is going to be, who is going to crush the serpent, who will save us from sin and death. Maybe it's Cain. Nope, clearly not. Maybe it's Noah. Nope, clearly not. Maybe it's Abram. Nope, clearly not. Her plan and his passive assent to her plan is nothing but sinful disbelief. God has spoken. His word was clear, but they failed to believe. They failed to heed. They failed to wait. And their impatience is going to result in disaster. So, sure, don't be like Abram and Sarah here. We All of us have a natural and sinful tendency to think that we can provide solutions to what we perceive as God's problems, right? We are all of us happy to proclaim God's sovereignty until it confronts and conflicts with our desires, right? Uh, No matter our circumstances, though, no matter how long you've been waiting, sin is never a solution. God doesn't need your help. In fact, your help will only be harm. One of the hardest but most important disciplines to learn in the Christian life is the discipline of waiting. This has been 10 years, There's a 13-year gap between the next chapter. That's 23-plus years. Sometimes we have to wait. Faith in the Lord will often require waiting on the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, be patient. Wait. Trust the Lord. It is never okay to bring about God's ends through your sinful means. But again, it's just not the point of the story. Let's get to the only character that shows up in both parts of the story. What about Hagar? What do we do with Hagar? Why is this story here? And what part does she play? And frequently, she is the weak and oppressed victim of abuse in the story. And then God shows up to her in verse 7 and says, Oh, look, God is so nice. Uh, These people are terrible. But God's nice. He cares about the down and out. So if you're down and out, if you're weak and oppressed, God sees you. God cares. Be encouraged. I can sure a lot of that is kind of true. God does see his people. Uh, God does love and care for his people, including the weak and oppressed. That's just not the point of the story. That's that's not what's going on here. That's kind of sort of the right truth from the definite wrong text. Look again at the passage. Go back to verse 1. This is important. Hagar, verse 1, the Egyptian. Verse 3, the Egyptian. Why? And, and why twice? Well, context. Look up, first of all. Read chapter 16 in light of chapter 15. Read Egyptian twice in light of chapter 15. What has just happened? What has God just told Abram? Remember, it was a little bit of good news, bad news uh, sort of thing. A lot of bit great news, but preceded by a little bit of bad news. Which was what? Look at 15 verse 13. Remember, Abram has just been promised a people, but they, Abram's offspring, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be afflicted. But afterwards, after 400 years, that's a really long time, by the way. 
Our country has only been a nation for less than 250 years. In 150 more years of our nation's history, that's how long Israel would be afflicted. Afflicted by whom, though? Well, again, we know. And God hints at it. He will give them the land after that 400 years. What land? What's the first name mentioned? First name mentioned from the river of Egypt. And then when we finish this book in four or five years, we'll finish it with Israel down in Egypt. And then Exodus will open with Israel oppressed down in Egypt. God has just promised and predicted that. Then, remember, no chapter breaks or numbers when this was originally written. So just a few words later, after these verses, we have, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And again, a few words later, Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian. And there's nothing incidental or accidental in God's word. And don't forget who this is first being written to. Israel, in the wilderness, right after coming out of Egypt, the enemy, yet often still wishing and longing to return to Egypt, the oppressor, uh, and Israel's the oppressed, Egypt, the enemy, and here we have an Egyptian. So again, maybe there's something more going on here. Is she mistreated by Abram and Sarai? Oh, of course she is. Right? What they do to poor Hagar is is terrible. We've already named this the fall of Abram and Sarai. And that fall revolves around what they do to her. This is wrong. They mistreat her. She is a victim. She is given to Abram as a wife. And then verse 4, he goes into her and she conceives. But she's not without fault in this whole affair. She has sinned against greatly. But how does she respond to being sinned against? Remember, there are no human heroes in this story. Look at verse 4. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hmm. What does that mean exactly? Whatever it is, Sarai is not happy about it. Look at verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. First of all, same as Genesis 3 again. No responsibility taken, only blame given, just like Adam and Eve. But what did Hagar do, really? It's repeated twice. She looked with contempt. Contempt. Uh, The word means to treat something lightly or slightly, as if it has no weight and thus no value. So to treat it with contempt, or as often as word is translated, to despise. And we've actually already seen this word in the Abram story. And I don't think this is accidental. Look back again at chapter 12, verse 3. God's promise to Abram. We've already read it. God had said, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. Same word. Exact same word that's repeated twice in our story. Dishonors, contempt. God says, whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And then here we have Hagar dishonoring Sarai twice. Hey, interesting. Keep that in mind as we get, well, we're not really going to get to point three. As we briefly touch on uh, point three. But for now, everything is a mess. Everyone is at fault. 
Hagar has been grossly dishonored. She dishonors in return. Sarai blames Abram. Abram continues to passively refuse any sort of responsibility and dishonors Hagar again by giving her up to Sarai. Sarai continues to dishonor Hagar as she treats her harshly to the point that Hagar can take it no more and she runs. She flees. It's like a terrible daytime soap opera where everyone's awful and everyone is terrible and everyone is sinning against everyone else. The end of part one. Here is what happens when man seeks to bring about God's good promises uh, through their sinful bad means. This is the fall of the seeds of the woman. Point number two, which brings us to the coming of the seed of the woman. Look at verse seven. Hagar flees. The angel of the Lord finds. And here, finally, we find the point of the passage. The angel of the Lord. This is the first named reference to the angel of the Lord in the Bible. That has to be of significance. No introduction, no explanation. All of a sudden, in the midst of the chaos, the fall, the sin, this character comes. And so the question is, who is this character? This is the first of 48 uses of the title, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And this is pretty important, I think. Also, that same title, not used once in the New Testament. All right, the Hebrew word, uh, malak, malak, just means messenger. And it's translated messenger in the Old Testament almost as many times as it's translated angel. The point is that this word doesn't just refer to an angelic being. It refers to some sort of messenger. The point of a messenger is his message, his revelation, his word. Well, so again, who is this messenger? Well, I think we can get a pretty good idea just from this text. Look at it. This messenger finds Hagar. She's probably back on her way to Egypt, back home. And then in verse 8, he speaks to her. He knows her name. He knows her situation. She confesses her flight from mistreatment in verse 8. And don't miss what he tells her in verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Most people just ignore that part of the text. But look at verse 10. We've been seeing in this whole first part of Genesis that God is by nature the God who speaks. He is the God who makes promises. He's done so in chapter 12 and chapter 15 to Abram. Verse 10, who is speaking? The messenger, I will surely multiply your offspring. And then he expands on the promise in verses 11 and 12. More on those in a second. But for now, we cannot miss that the angel, the messenger, says that he himself will do this. And then verse 13 is the nail in the coffin. How does Hagar understand all of this? Look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. And remember that Lord, when you see it in all caps there in the Old Testament, is God's personal name is Yahweh. This is the messenger of Yahweh that is speaking to Hagar. And in 13, she calls the name of the Lord Yahweh who spoke to her. And who spoke to her? The messenger. She calls him the Lord. And he says to the messenger, you are a God 
of seeing. This then is no mere messenger. This is no angel. And we cannot go back and look at all the other instances that confirm this. We'll see this messenger again in chapter 21. We'll see him again in chapter 22. Go look briefly. Let's run through a couple real quick. Go look at chapter 22 briefly. That story is when God has called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. But then God uh, provides a substitute, a sacrifice to die in Isaac's place. Look at verse 15 of chapter 22. Verse 15 says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abram, Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Again, who is speaking? The angel of the Lord who swears by himself the Lord. Right? Go to Exodus 3. Just a couple of pages uh, to your right. Have you ever really paid attention to Exodus 3? We know the story so well that we miss one of the most important things in the story. The burning bush. You know the story. You've probably seen the play over at Sight and Sound. Who appears to Moses in the burning bush? God, of course. Look at Exodus 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Look at verse 4. God called to him out of the bush. Look at verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Angel of the Lord appears to Moses. Moses is afraid to look at God. God spoke out of the bush. Who is appearing in the bush? This messenger, this angel of the Lord. There's so many. Judges 13.3, the angel of the Lord appeared to make another birth announcement. This one of Samson. Lots of interesting things happen. The angel pronounces that his name is wonderful. He goes up in the flame of sacrificial fire. There's all kinds of symbolism there. And then Samson's father, Manoah, realizes that they have seen the angel of the Lord. And he cries out in verse 22, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. This is no mere Messenger. The angel of Yahweh is not an angel. He is a messenger. And what are messengers about? Again, messages, revelation, words. And what, in just a few selections here, have we seen this messenger doing? Speaking, as he does here to Hagar in verse 13, the Lord who spoke to her. Well, and showing. Verse 13, I have seen him speaking, calling Moses uh, out of the bush, showing Moses was afraid to look at him, speaking, promising Samson to Manoah and his wife, showing we have seen God. And this is pretty important because of John 1, verse 18. I'm already working on the Gospel of John for the fall. I'm so excited. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. Wait a second. Lots of people see God in the Old Testament. We've just seen a few of them. First Timothy 6.16, God alone has immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is spirit. God is invisible. By definition, you cannot see that which is invisible. John 1.18 is clear. No one has seen 
God, the invisible God. Which means what? Colossians 1.15. It means that we desperately need an image of the invisible God. We desperately then need something, someone, that can show us the invisible God. We need a word from this invisible God. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. How? Verse 1. We're going to preach for eight weeks on verse 1 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, He, Jesus Christ, whom this whole story is about, is both the Word of God and the image of God. He both speaks God and shows God because He is God. And so we, when we see this messenger in chapter 16, both speaking God and showing God, we know that he too must be God because he too is the son. This is no angel. This is no mere messenger. This is the messenger, the message, the word, the image. This is God himself. And remember, Hebrews chapter 10, we can have access to God because of Jesus. He is the one who mediates the presence of God for us. He is the one that speaks and shows God as God. And so catch this. This could change everything. This could revolutionize how you read the Old Testament. I had a whole, I had pages of this I had to delete because we didn't have space. So I think I'm going to put it maybe in the email on Sunday. But listen, no one has seen God. Jesus speaks God and shows God, which means that when you see God and when God speaks in the Old Testament, it's the Son. That's who he is. That's what he does. Remember, like with the burning bush, we all think, oh, the Father, the Father, the Father. No, it tells us who it is. It's the angel of the Lord. It's the Son. It's the pre-incarnate coming of the Son of God. Listen to Jonathan Edwards here. He is smarter than all of us. This is in his lesser known but wonderful work, The History of Redemption. Jonathan Edwards writes this. Therefore, when we read in sacred history, I'm talking about the Old Testament, what God did from time to time towards his church, he means Israel, and people, and what he said to them, and how he revealed himself to them, we are to understand it, especially as the second person of the Trinity. When we read of God's appearing after the fall from time to time in some visible form or outward symbol of his presence, we are ordinarily, if not universally, to understand it as the second person of the Trinity. See, I cannot get into this as I would like to and defend this as I would like to, but ordinarily, if not universally, when God appears, when you see God, or when you hear God, you are seeing the Son. You are hearing the Son. Because that's what He is. He's the mediator. He's the Word. It has been His job from the beginning to go between God and man, to mediate the presence of God. And so sometimes I think we don't know how to read the Old Testament, especially some will look back and go, oh, you know, He's just not really there. There's some prophecies about Him. And then He'll come in the New Testament. No, He's everywhere. Right? He's speaking. He's acting. We know Genesis 1. He's creating. And so, when we see God walking in the garden in Genesis 3, 
It's an appearance of God. It's only the sun that appears, which means if this is the case, I can't, I pulled out all my justification and defense. But if that's the case, if God, no one can see, no one has seen God. Adam sees God. It's Jesus who is the image of God and reveals God. And it's Jesus, the son pre-incarnate who is walking in the garden. That means that it's the son who is speaking Genesis 3.15, which is about the seed. Right, who is the Son? He is speaking about Himself. The Word is giving a word about Himself. The promiser is the promised. And if that's true, again, consider again what we read last time in Genesis 15. Remember what happened in Genesis 15, in the cutting of the covenant. Remember, you pass through all these cut animals. In so doing, you're signifying, if I break this covenant, may I be torn apart like these animals? Abram doesn't pass through the animals. But verse 17, what does the smoking fire pot and flaming torch do? Images, appearances of God. What is an image of God? Who's the image of God? Who reveals God? It's the Son. That's the Son. He is the one who speaks and shows. And so there in cutting the covenant, he specifically is putting himself on the line. He is revealing what he is going to do, what he has already promised to do in Genesis 3.15. The seed who would crush the head of the serpent by having his own heel crushed. That's a death blow. He, the seed who would defeat sin, Satan, and death through the Son. It is He, the Son. It's the seed Himself who comes and who speaks and who shows in Genesis 16. The seeds, plural, of the woman have failed and fallen, just like Genesis 3. And just like Genesis 3, what does God do? He appears. He comes. And God only appears and only comes in the Son, the Son who is the seed. And so here he again in Genesis 16 speaks. He promises, and we just don't have time for it, but I think that most of us get this wrong. It's generally, oh, look how nice God is. Look at how he blesses poor Hagar. Look at it. Is that really what's going on here? It never calls this a blessing. Look at the context of it. Look at verse 12. Yes, she too will have a son, a seed. Well, who is he? Well, what's he going to be like? Oh, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. That doesn't sound much like a blessing. Read that in light of Genesis 3.15. Two lines. Two seeds. The whole point of this passage is that the seed that will be born out of this sinful plan is not the seed. In fact, as we'll see when we get to chapter 21 more clearly, it sure seems like he's the other seed. Right? Three times in that verse, against, against, against. Remember, 3.15 is the summary statement. Two lines in opposition to each other. Two lines against each other. Well, here is that Seed. The seed of the woman is predicting and promising the seed of the serpent. 
I'm just summarizing our last two points here. This is not about God looking out for the down and out and the weak and the impressed, the oppressed. This is not about God blessing Hagar. This is about um, God being faithful to do what he has said. God being faithful to perform his promises in Genesis 3, 15. This is all an unpacking and a fulfillment of that. The conflict continues. And again, that's, it'll come to a head in chapter 21. And for now, though, we've got to be, we've got to stop and we'll come back to it. But the main thing I want you to see is the angel of the Lord. If this is correct, if this is the son, the seed, then the promiser is also the promised. And the promise is that as he does here, he will come. God's people sin, God comes. God's people sin, God comes. We sin, God comes in Christ. He will come to rescue his people from their enemy, from Satan, their own sin and death, and he will do it by dying for his people. And you know, this isn't like, this passage isn't about the present conflict in the Middle East and Muslims being our enemies. No, Galatians 4, we'll look at it next week maybe, Paul takes Hagar, and what does he do? He applies her to Israel. It's not any one ethnic people that are against God. It's every people that seek and attempt to relate to God on the basis of works. It doesn't work. We have separated ourselves from him. He is perfect, and we very much are not. We cannot work our way back to perfection, and so we cannot be with him. And that's why Christ comes, because our only hope is grace. This angel of the Lord, the word, the image, Jesus speaks and shows God, and he shows us a God of merciful and compassionate grace. He speaks, he promises, and he always performs his promise. It's his work, not ours. And he's showing us that here. He is showing us again because we need to hear it again, that he is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. And he will do what he has said. He will come. And he has come. So wait on him. Trust him. Cling to the son who is the seed who defeats sin and death. That's what this passage is about. The people sin. The son comes. The people sin. The seed comes to save. Why? Why is this so important? Why did I probably over-argue my case for way too long for the importance of reading this story in context. All about God's guaranteed fulfillment of his promises. Uh, because I'll, I'm going to close, I'll close with Calvin. Listen to what Calvin writes. This is in, from, I think, his commentary in Romans 4, talking about Abraham. Here's what he says. He says, the condition of all of us is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. How relevant does that sound? He declares that he counts us just. Oh, we are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? His answer? He goes on. Calvin writes, We must then, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us, that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. You see, everyone preaches this text and says, look, 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 look what they do, look what they do. Calvin says, no, 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 shut your eyes. Don't look at yourself. Pass by yourself. Don't look at your circumstances. Ignore your circumstances. Let nothing hinder you from believing that God is true. 
This passage is further proof of that life-giving and life-sustaining fact. The cross that this chapter points us forward to is perfect proof of that. God is true to his word. God keeps his promises. God promises life through the seed, life through his son. And the son comes here. The son has come for us on the cross. The son comes and he faithfully performs God's promises. And so God, wait and trust him to do what he says because he who promises is faithful. He will surely do it. Trust him. And if you would bow with me, let's close and in this time with a word of prayer. Father, I pray now that you would work through your word. I pray that you would give us a great delight in the hearing of your word. Father, I pray that I would get great delight not in trying to be creative or witty or come up with interesting interpretations. Father, I pray that I would be excited about the revelation of your son. I pray that I would be excited about the coming of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you are always the God who finds and comes and who speaks and reveals. And we thank you that you have done that for us in your word, which we know is all about Jesus Christ, Father, even in more profound ways than I think most of us understand. Father, this chapter reveals to us Jesus Christ. And so I simply ask um, that in this time of waiting, in this time of our circumstances, sometimes uh, threatening and and conflicting with some of your uh, promises, Father, I pray that we would close our eyes to self and sin, close our eyes to circumstances, and that we would let nothing hinder us from believing you, and that you're true, and that you're good, and that you're kind. And Father, fix our eyes on the cross that prove how good and true and kind uh, you are to us. Um, Father, I pray that we would read and that we would see your son all over the pages of scripture. Father, I pray that we would live and see your son all over uh, the pages of our lives and see how faithful and good and kind uh, you are to your people. And, And you show that to us here as you come and guarantee and promise that you are going to do what you have said that you would do. Father, help us to trust that. Help us to believe that you are working all of these things for good. Even this quarantine, even our separation from one another, even the sicknesses and the death. Father, help us to trust you and rest in you and rejoice in you because you are faithful and true. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.